This Janet Meffer Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. We're trying to provide 100 refugee families with emergency supplies and the gospel during this urgent time of crisis. Your gift of $116 will help two families. Please help today by calling 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us. Election years are really interesting, aren't they? Back in 2016, evangelical Trump supporters were predictably attacked by the secular left, but also by never-Trumpers within evangelical ranks who said their votes amounted to an abandonment of Christian principles. Remember all that? Well, this year it's even worse in some ways. Now we have evangelical notables like John Piper or Veggie Tales creator Phil Vischer or leaders of the Gospel Coalition openly pushing Christians to reconsider voting for the GOP for other reasons. We even saw more than 5,000 professing Christians sign on to an effort called Pro-Life Evangelicals for Biden, in which they tout openly supporting a radical pro-abortion candidate. Yes, I don't understand that. But are we so focused on this particular election that we are missing the bigger picture about these kinds of developments within the church? As my next guest pointed out in a recent Washington Times op-ed, 2020 could be the last time the GOP wins the White House because young evangelicals are flocking to Democrats and socialism. A huge problem, of course. We're going to get more thoughts on it right now from Jeff Myers, president of Summit Ministries. Jeff, so good to have you here again. How are you? I'm good, Janet. Thank you. Yeah, great to have another conversation with you. I really enjoy your show. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I I really appreciate what you wrote here because I think it is important for people to get your main point, which is, as I understand, the importance of recognizing the broader problem that we're having inside evangelical ranks. It's not just about one election or two elections. It's about what is happening as an undercurrent in evangelicalism, and that is that the younger generations of professing Christians are more and more and more in the tank for socialism and for social justice and all the things that the left pushes. Where are we right now? I mean, when you're looking with a broad brush, you're painting with a broad brush and looking overall at the church, what do you see from your vantage point? Janet, you're exactly right. Conservatives are spending billions of dollars to win this election, to just try to flip a few undecided votes one way, one time. But the left has already won the hearts and minds of the next generation of voters, and you see that in the church. 69% of evangelical youth who attend church don't believe in absolute truth. Young Christians are five times more likely than their older peers to embrace Marxist ideals. The truth is we've failed to prepare young Christians with a biblical worldview, and now we're surprised that they're not thinking and acting biblically when it comes to their vote. Well, why do you think that is? You have your finger on the pulse more than probably anybody, because this is what you major in, is teaching a biblical worldview to students. But what has gone wrong such that you have that big a number of professing younger Christians, 69% saying they don't believe in absolute truth? What have we been doing wrong as older Christians inside these churches where these kids are attending? You know, Janet, one study done by George Barna showed that 90% of pastors believe the Bible speaks to today's issues, but only 10% of them have ever brought that up in the pulpit. So if you're going to church and and your pastor has all these convictions but never talks about them, your natural assumption would be 
what we're talking about today has no bearing on culture. Mm -hmm. And if you're a young person and you have that over and over again, nobody ever asks you, what do you think? What do your friends think? How are people in your generation talking this through? Why would they say that? Are you open to a different point of view? Those kinds of discussion questions, Janet, are so simple. You ask them a hundred times on your show every day. Everybody who's listening can ask those questions of their children and grandchildren. But so often we just don't let that conversation take place. And therefore, we have no opportunity to really help shape the worldviews of those who are coming after us. Well, you're right. And and what I found to be interesting this year is increasingly you're finding more in the millennial generation of evangelicals actually trying to turn the church left. They're trying to turn the church left actively in their ministry platforms. We're not just talking the sojourners crowd. We're talking some of these people who are part of what would be considered mainstream evangelical ministries or publications. It just seems like the whole church is shifting in many ways. I think the church is shifting to a certain extent. I'm not sure how that'll affect the vote. I'm not sure how that affects the future of evangelicalism. That's a little harder to see. Right. But surely it affects voting. If eight out of 10 evangelicals supported Donald Trump, if you could just bleed that out by five or 10 percent, you can change the outcome of the election. Sure. Uh, evangelicals were half of Donald Trump's vote. So, yes, this is something that we need to be concerned with for this election. But in the future, I do believe we need to turn our attention back to training young adults in a biblical worldview. It really makes a difference. And it, it's, it's astounding. For example, in our program, we found that when you when you train a young person with a biblical worldview, 83% of them are supportive of capitalism, 91% support conservative social policies, 83% oppose abortion, 83% want government to be small and limited in scope. And, and right now, that's 6% of young people who are in churches. Could we double that? Could we get it to 12% or triple it, get it to 18%? So you don't have to have the entire country moving your direction. You just need to have people who want to be biblically faithful, knowing how to give an answer for what they believe. Well, that's good. The other question that pops into a lot of Christians' minds is, of these church-going younger, you know, Gen Zers and millennials and so forth, the millennials are getting, you know, more toward middle age now, so they're not so much the kids. But people will talk about the fact that how many of these kids are really saved or these students, you know, the younger ones are kids. But coming into high school and college students, they may be going to church week after week. They may be going to youth group. Do they really know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord? Do you think it comes down to that fundamental question first uh, to, to really ensure that these kids are hearing the gospel and are responding in, in the, the way that they should to the gospel to begin with? Because that's really where it all begins. Uh, I think you're right, Janet, that you, you talk about this all of the time. If you're not walking the talk, then your talk has no meaning. Yeah. So I think a lot of people, you know, we need to go back and ask, okay, so Jesus said, you know, if, you're, if you love me, then you'll, you'll do what I command. Yes. The Apostle Paul said, if you're gonna, if you have a real faith, it will bear fruit. Our, where's the fruit? If yeah. there's no fruit, then there there might not be an underlying core of faith, or there might be a misunderstanding of faith. So that's that is an area where churches can speak authoritatively today to say we need we need to think through not only how to to believe and and you know to just to mentally assent to say the Bible is true, 
but what does this look like this week? <laughs> At Summit Ministries, we have what we call, in all of our teachings, the water cooler test. If I teach this to a 20-something young person on Sunday, could they stand around the water cooler on Monday and articulate it in a credible way with non-believers? If not, then we need to go back and redo those action points and make sure that they can. That's really good. I want to get into more about that, Jeff, in a few minutes. But I wanted to touch on this issue because one of the things that you mentioned in your op-ed is it's been alarming for you to see the younger generation wanting a very different America than perhaps their forebears. What bothers you the most about that as we are on the precipice of another presidential election and the two sides in many ways have never been further apart? Janet, what bothers me the most is the capitulation to the culture. Our founding fathers had, they had, there were three P's in politics, and it's principles, policies, and personalities. They always started with the principles first. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal. Then they moved on to the policies. Therefore, we will have a Congress that will have representatives selected from the various states. Then only, and only then did they go on to the personalities because they knew they're going to have to work with people who are very different from themselves on policies. So what are the principles underlying it? The problem today, Janet, and conservatives do this, liberals do this, they always start with the personalities. Do I like this guy or not? If I don't like him, then whatever he says he's for, I am against. (laughs) And it's this very reactive kind of policymaking decision process that can never lead you to any enduring principles. I think we have to start by teaching believers. You start with the principles first. Out of those principles, then come key policies. Out of those policies, then you realize, I may have to work with people I find to be prickly or rude because we're doing this for the greater purpose of the future of our nation. That's a really excellent point. And the problem that comes up with that point being raised is the question of whether or not Americans all agree on what the essential principles are. I mean, historically, as Americans, we've all held to freedom, individual liberty, capitalism. We understand our core principles Are we still there? We're going to come back with Jeff Myers. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. We'll return right after this. If you could provide God's word to a Bibleist believer elsewhere in the world, would you? Through the ministry of Bible League International, you can send that Bible today. Hebrews 13.3 urges us to remember those in great need, noting that when the body of Christ anywhere is found lacking, we're encouraged to help provide it. These believers live where churches are small and remote, where authorities aren't welcoming of Christianity, and where Bibles are scarce. As Pastor Carlo in Peru says, they need the hope found only in God's Word. Everyone wants to read the Bible, but what happens, there are a few copies here in the area. Many of them will uh, be sharing the single Bible. For only $5, believers around the world will receive Bibles and be discipled in their new faith. $35 sends seven Bibles, $100 sends 20. And because of a matching gift right now, your gift will be doubled. Call 800 Yes Word, 800 Y E S W O R D, 800 Yes Word, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. 
As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. 855-565-2561. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Well, I sure appreciate the recent opinion piece in the Washington Times penned by my guest, Jeff Myers, president of Summit Ministries. Young church-going Christians embrace anti-religious socialism through the Democratic Party, winning the election battle, but losing the culture war for the future of America. And we do have to look at some of these recent statistics from Barna and others who've been tracking the loss of holding to the concept of absolute truth among a lot of young church-going Christians. There's some really bad trends in America. And you were making a really good point, Jeff, before we went to that last break, and that was the importance of holding to principles first, then policies, then personalities. And these days we see a lot of flipping of those three things. But when we're talking about principles, we have the problem of having opposite principles now in the United States. We have open socialists serving in Congress, AOC, Bernie Sanders, these people coming forward and talking about free college for everybody. I mean, that would have been nuts to even say that 20 years ago. Now you have, you know, this conflict between traditional American principles, even on the issue of free speech. We're having problems with free speech or freedom of religion being considered anti-LGBT. We're encountering these clashes of, of these principles all of the time. Is that a solvable problem? It's not solvable at the level of policy, in my opinion. If someone is opposed, someone says, oh, I, I, I embrace socialism because we'll get free college. That's a policy. Yeah. But nobody ever stops and asks, what is that policy based on? What yeah. is the worldview that is behind that? And I think a lot of these socialists have, are getting away with only talking about the policies or pointing at the personality. You know, here's what we are. We're the good people. Look at that. Donald Trump, he's bad. And, and look how nasty he is to us and so forth. But they never get back to the principles. What, you know, what's your book? I, I'll stand with the Bible. What's your book? Communist Manifesto? Mm-hmm. Communist Manifesto says you enshrined atheism and that the material world is all there is. There's no God, no Jesus, no Holy Spirit, no heaven, no hell, no angels, no demons, no good ideas, no innovation, no nothing. None of that matters, only what is in the physical world. Yeah. I think if people were to see that the principles on which a lot of those policies are based are faulty about what we know to be true about reality, then people could have, a, have some room to maybe back away from them and rethink them. And, and we're finding that is true with the young adults we work with. A lot of them, they just, you know, it sounds good. Free college sounds good. You know, <laughs> taking care of people sounds good. Compassion, what could possibly be wrong with that? And they, they need to be able to go back and look at the worldviews that underlie it all. 
Yeah, well, and that's part of the problem, too, is you have a lot of these politicians on the left who simply don't want to talk about the principles because if they were honest about the principles, they would open themselves up for much more criticism. Free college sounds no. great, but if you start <laughs> hailing Karl Marx, all of a sudden you're, you're opening up a Pandora's box that you might not be, be able to crawl out of because more people would see what you're really all about. Karl Marx thought you could bring about a better future if you destroy everything that is good now. He used the word abolish, I think, 39 times in the Communist Manifesto. It was cancel culture on steroids and vitamin B12 at the same time. (laughs) So if people grasp that, I think you're right. They would pull away from it. So obviously people like AOC and others are motivated to be sure no one ever talks about the worldview and principles that underlie the things that they say, which means that we should be absolutely talking about them all of the time with our kids and with our neighbors. Yeah, well, well, getting back to this really key point that you're making in this piece, you say that your fellow evangelicals are so focused on winning this election, they don't realize that the data shows we've already lost all elections after this one. I mean, that's a really daunting claim to make. Why do you think that that's the case? I think it's the case, Janet, because we have not put an emphasis on biblical worldview training. You know, I was looking at the total figures for election spending, and conservatives have put about $5 billion into this election trying to swing the 5% of the undecided voters. That's 7.5 million people. That's about $600 per vote. Not guaranteed that you get them. You're spending $600 to try to get them. For that amount of money, it's some ministries, and I know other biblical worldview organizations can do the same thing. We can train a young person in a biblical worldview that will help them make good decisions, including voting for the rest of their lives. Yeah, yeah. You know, Jesus right. said, where your treasure is, there your heart is. Where is our heart? Right. Well, what needs to be covered? Because I'm sure there's not a Christian listening today who would not agree. Yes, we need to train our kids in a biblical worldview. We need to do a better job discipling them so they will be on a solid foundation as Christians moving forward into full adulthood and beyond becoming parents and grandparents themselves. But what sorts of things need to be covered? Do you think what are the essentials when you're doing that kind of training with young people? You start, Janet, with theology. Is there a God or isn't there? Because most people will agree, yes, there is a God. Well, if there is a God, then your understanding of reality is different. Your understanding of reality is different than your basis for deciding what is right and what is wrong is different. If if your basis for deciding that is different, then you build a different kind of society with different kind of people who are psychologically healthy, who make better economic decisions, and so on and so forth. So you start with God and who, who God is, what God is like, his nature and character, and then you move on to, so who are we? We are made to be image bearers of God. Every single person has value because we are image bearers of God, not just because we managed to survive the womb. Hmm. And then you move on from humanity into relationship. So what is pro- broken in our relationship with God? And then, therefore, what is broken in our relationship with other people? Those are lessons that people may pick up in church or they may not, depending on whether they're able to tie together all of the different plot points they're given over the course of all the sermons they hear. Yes. Uh, I believe it's best in a concentrated format. You know, a weekend event is good. A week-long training program like Summit Ministries or Worldview Academy or many of the others out there is, is better at Summit Ministries. Our best program that has the longest results is a 12-day in-person program for young adults 16 to 25, where they come to join us in Colorado or, or at one of our other locations around the world, and they get to personally visit with 
the thought leaders who are the experts in all of these issues and ask whatever questions they want. And that ensuing dialogue really changes them. It's wonderful to see that and to hear about that because that's exactly what all of these students need. Something else that you had said before, Jeff, that I want to touch on a little bit more was when you were talking about principles and policies and personalities, and for so many people, personalities trump everything else, no pun intended. But, (laughs) you know, it's a shallow kind of thinking, if any thinking is done at all, for a lot of people before they go into a voting booth. This brings up the whole principle of being not just somebody who can state policies or have opinions but who can think, period. How do you train young Christians to think, to analyze, to look at what is being taught or what kind of propaganda they might be getting in school and to be able to think it through and be logical and biblical at the same time to discern truth from error? You're you're bringing up a really, really important point that the, the key to thinking is to begin with the recognition that there are thoughts that, that can be thought among us. In other words, it's not just that I'm socially constructing reality for myself, but that we're somehow seeking a truth that we can believe actually exists, that ideas are real. Justice is a real thing. It's not just my opinion about what's just or unjust. Love is real. The kingdom of God is real. People who get so used to the idea that only the material world exists, begin to take anything that they can't see, hear, feel, or touch and assume that it doesn't exist. So you start with that in thinking, and then you begin to challenge. Why did you say that? What is your evidence for it? How do you back that up? Those kinds of questions, once you start a discussion with that, people can quickly reorient and say, okay, I better step up. I can't just emote here and expect that I will be taken seriously. Yeah, and and, you know, this kind of goes along with what's going on on the internet, for example, because there's this big debate about whether or not social media is censoring Christians, censoring conservatives. There's not really much of a question that they're doing it, but they try to make, like in this hearing, trying to make a case that, well, you know, we have the right to correct misinformation. And when you are 15 or 16 and you're growing up in that kind of a propagandized environment, when you're young, you might think, oh, that's just the way it is. But on the other hand, for people who are older, Christians who are older saying, but that's not how it ought to be, particularly when we're talking about free speech. This is going to matter down the road, isn't it, Jeff? I mean, we're talking about the rights of Christians to be able to continue to have the First Amendment front and center. I wonder how much of these younger Christians who think it's no big deal realize what is possibly coming down the road if we don't fight these battles. I'm not sure a lot of younger Christians see what is coming down the road. I I think that's probably characteristic of youth. Young adults tend to take more risks because they haven't fully contemplated what could happen. Yeah, true. They take those risks. (laughs) Right. Um, In some ways, that serves us well, right? Uh, Young warriors go off to war, and they're extremely brave in battle, oftentimes because they just, you know, they want to do what's right, and they haven't really thought through what might happen as a result. Uh, But that's just the difference between the younger generation and the older generation. Typically, though, in a good, well-functioning, healthy society, there's a baton passing from the older generation to the younger generation, where somebody says, you know, we may think very differently about this, and I believe I can learn from you, and I think I have some things that you could learn from me. Could we have coffee together? You know, let's go get coffee and talk is one of the lost 
art of political discourse. Right. Well, right. We just need to be able to get back into a place where we can talk to one another. That would be a a wonderful beginning place. And, you know, I think this is so important what you're talking about, Jeff. It's not just Summit Ministries that is, you know, responsible for making sure that the younger Christians are discipled and trained in a biblical worldview, but it's also imperative that we as parents, we as grandparents, we as leaders in the church, all are working together because this is something that is important for every single person in the body of Christ as we are looking not only to the future of the church, but the future of this country. And I'm very, very happy that you wrote this piece in the Washington Times. I want to refer you to summit.org. That is the website for Summit Ministries. And you can check out more about biblical worldview training. We sure do appreciate what Jeff and his team do over there. And so glad to have you, Jeff Myers from Summit Ministries. Thank Thank you so much, Jeff. Always great to talk to you. Thank you, Janet. Really enjoyed the conversation. Me too. Take care and God bless you. We'll be back. This Janet Meffer Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. We're trying to provide 100 refugee families with emergency supplies and the gospel during this urgent time of crisis. Your gift of $116 will help two families. Please help today by calling 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. No sooner had Amy Coney Barrett won confirmation as the newest Supreme Court justice than the media began actively predicting the end of Obamacare. Now, it is true that Justice Barrett will be seated for that November 10th hearing on Obamacare, which Republican lawmakers say is unconstitutional. That doesn't mean the whole law is in peril, of course, but what would happen if it were struck down, what are the options for Americans when it comes to covering their health care costs? We're going to talk about it now with Matt Bellis, Chief Communications Officer for Liberty HealthShare, a national nonprofit health care sharing ministry. Matt, so great to have you with us. How are you today? Thank you for having me, Janet. Do you think Obamacare does have any chance of being outright overturned? Or do you think some of these protestations from the media are overblown? Well, I actually think that we're, what we're going to see is a slow chipping away of the uh, of the law um, to where it might just be a shell of uh, what it might have uh, tried to be or, or what at least the teeth of it was. We saw that uh, back in 2018 when the uh, the removal of the penalty went away for 2019 and beyond. Uh, now, who knows, though, it, it, we might actually be able to see the ACA come back in a bigger, stronger form uh, under a Biden administration. That policy seems to strengthen the ACA, put back some of the, play, the things that were taken out and to uh, to make it a bigger, stronger effort, especially things with like a public option and otherwise. Right. Uh, but uh, what we're seeing with a Trump administration is probably a slow chipping away. Don't know if it'll be an outright ban, uh, but uh, we are we are going to see some changes in the healthcare world because healthcare has just become so political over the past uh, decade 
that it's become a hot button issue. Oh, has it ever? I mean, that's such an understatement. It's just totally politicized. And I'm curious when you're talking about a Biden administration and the, you know, the public option and everything that's been discussed along those lines, how would Obamacare potentially be strengthened? What would that look like if Joe Biden were the one elected president? Well, we saw one of those, uh, a couple of those items, uh, that public option, as you mentioned, uh, an expansion that uh, goes towards Medicare, uh, more greater controls as it comes to uh, the, the government making negotiations for pharmaceuticals and otherwise, uh, those kinds of things would be coming into play. But I have to say, it has been a little mysterious. We haven't seen a big plan come out of the, uh, the Biden uh, idea or policy playbook to say exactly what would happen. It's probably that old line that we heard probably 10 years ago that uh, we'd have to vote him in <laughs> to be able to see what happens with health care, yep. just like we saw with the ACA, that we had to vote it in before we saw what was actually in it. Uh, so it might, it might be that issue all over again, uh, which, you know, on a, on a Liberty HealthShare side, we look at that and say, eh, that's not preferable. Right, right. No, they, they do like that way. You just, you know, let them have control and then you'll figure out what you just signed up for. <laughs> not the way we normally like to do things. I like to see things the, laid out before you actually get on board. But this is very interesting because obviously healthcare sharing ministries like Liberty HealthShare were given an exemption when Obamacare was put, passed into law. How would this affect Liberty HealthShare at all, one way or another? The future of Obamacare, how much does it matter as far as healthcare sharing ministries are concerned? Well, if it's just sticking with the ACA and playing around the edges with it, uh, healthcare sharing is already written into the law. A uh, little known fact is that healthcare sharing ministries and the members of healthcare sharing ministries have an exemption uh, through the law, They're exempted from the fines and the mandates of the Affordable Care Act. It's written right there. And so we can see that, you know, if it were coming to a, an ACA type of, uh, of plan, then, then healthcare sharing would be uh, already there and, uh, and safe. If there was another type of, uh, of healthcare plan to be put out there that had more restrictions, greater government control, overreach, and the like, uh, we would need to see some health care sharing uh, uh, protections or the people at least in it uh, so that uh, we wouldn't get any kind of uh, run roughshod over health care sharing ministries. Uh, what we've seen from, again, a, a Trump administration is a drawing back of the regulations, a loosening of the guidelines. Right. Uh, so we'd feel pretty confident that health care sharing would do well under uh, under that type of system. Uh, rather than having more uh, governmental control. Right. Now, we have talked, I know, before about the differences between healthcare sharing ministries like Liberty HealthShare and health insurance. And one of the main differences is you're taking away the third party that is part of when you have private healthcare insurance and you have to go through that third party payer system that can be so annoying for so many of us. But for newbies, how does it work if somebody comes and, and says, I don't want to have my high priced insurance anymore. I want to try doing something that is in line with my moral principles, my conscience as a Christian. I want to be able to do something that's a little bit more personal. Why is healthcare sharing a good option for someone like that? Well, because healthcare sharing restores that community relationship that a lot of people have and a person's autonomy uh, within healthcare. 
it's something that we don't necessarily recognize in healthcare because we've just become so used to the way healthcare has been in this country where we pay our premiums and give money to the third party and then we get whatever's coming to us. But under healthcare sharing, you have a tremendous amount of freedom, guidance. You get to direct and manage your healthcare the way that you see fit uh, with your desires and what you want. And during those times that are unexpected and unaffordable, we have a community of people who are gathered together to share in your medical expenses. And frankly, we look at it and say that's pretty much the way God intended it to be. Yeah. Uh, he set up our communities. He, he wanted to make sure that we were taking care of one another, and that's what we have within Liberty Health Share. We have a nationwide community of men and women all over the country supporting each other in our most dire times of need. When it comes to our health care, we're talking about life and death decisions. So we're here to support each other, but give each other the autonomy to make those decisions on the local level so that we restore the relationship between the patient and the doctor that can be managed, guided, and directed by the individual patient, supporting them with the community all across the country. That's why it's so important, and especially when it comes to our faith, because this is the way that we truly feel that God has set it up. Well, right. So when you go to a doctor or you go to a hospital, many people wonder how much of my bill is paid. Do I have co-pays? Are there deductibles? How similar is it to my health insurance experience? Well, it's very similar in the way that it functions, but it couldn't be more different in the way that it actually works. Because as you go to the doctor or hospital, uh, you're given a Liberty HealthShare membership card. You show the card to the front desk, and they're then uh, going to submit the bills in the way that it needs to be uh, submitted. Whenever we receive those bills, uh, we tell you, hey, there's an amount that you pay up front, uh, not to your, uh, excuse me, there's an amount that you pay before sharing begins to your doctor or hospital called your annual unshared amount. It's the amount of money you pay to your doctor or hospital before sharing begins. After that annual unshared amount, that's when the sharing of the community medical bills uh, starts coming together. So it really is a different way of understanding how these things happen, but how they function, it's very similar to what people already understand. But frankly, uh, when you're talking about how it all works and what it comes down to, there couldn't be a bigger difference. And frankly, we wouldn't have it any other way. Well, right. So if you like your doctor, can you keep your doctor? <laughs> Some say. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of times if your doctor likes you, does he want to keep you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, if you like your doctor, keep your doctor, work with them. If they don't have a problem with you being a Liberty Health Share member, we don't have a problem with you seeing them. We want you to have that relationship with your doctor. Again, it's probably one of the highest, most important uh, relationships that you have with a professional that you can have. Well, that's right. And there's so many other things that I know a lot of questions people have about Liberty HealthShare, and they can find those answers over at your website. I'll give that out so listeners can check it out. It's libertyhealthshare.org, libertyhealthshare.org, Liberty HealthShare, a national nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry. Worth a look. Matt Vallis, always good to talk to you, my friend. Thank you for being with us again. Janet, thank you. God bless. God bless you, too. We'll be back on Janet Meffer Today.
How much is one life worth? Most of us would say life is priceless, and we'd be right. After all, what is the value of someone created in the image of God? We're asking Janet Meffer Today listeners, just like you, to help us save babies through the ministry of Preborn. How does Preborn save babies? Through ultrasounds. Preborn works with hundreds of pro-life pregnancy centers across America, providing free ultrasounds for women in crisis pregnancies. And 80% of the time, when a mother sees her little baby on an ultrasound, she'll choose life. It's that easy. We need your help to support the vital work of preborn in saving human lives. For your gift of $28, you can provide a free ultrasound to a mom in a crisis pregnancy. And for a gift of $140, you can provide five ultrasounds to five mothers. All you have to do is call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Thank you for saving a baby's life. For several years now, Syrians have been pouring into the country of Lebanon to seek refuge amid terrorism and civil war. Now the crisis in Lebanon has escalated in the aftermath of COVID-19, a crumbling economy, and a devastating explosion in Beirut. Yet the spiritual crisis in Lebanon is the most devastating crisis of all because many people there have still never heard anything about Jesus. That's why Heart for Lebanon is on the ground ministering to hurting refugee families in the South and the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon, providing emergency supplies. Christian education, Bible studies, and worship gatherings for these refugee families. And the impact is incredible. Your investment of $116 will help two families impacted by the crisis in Lebanon to get emergency supplies that they need to survive during the next 60 days. But best of all, these families will hear the gospel of Jesus for the very first time. A gift of $58 is enough to help one family. Can you help? Call now, 888 888- Two four seven fifty four ninety nine. You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now here's Janet. A lot of news to pack into just a few more minutes. We're going to do our best here. Tony Bobolinsky, boy, that guy is an American hero as far as I'm concerned. Sitting down with Fox News's Tucker Carlson for a full show in order to outline all of his connections to the Biden family and to defend himself against. Adam Schiff's charge of Russian disinformation. Kind of funny, isn't it, how it comes down to Adam Schiff? Adam Schiff was the one trying to put forth the idea that Bobolinsky was uh, involved in Russian disinformation. And Bobolinsky apparently went to the Bidens and said, you know, if you shut him down, you know, I won't go public. They wouldn't do it. So this interview happened. And I'm really glad it did, although immediately places like Twitter started censoring it right and left. And that led into some discussions during the big tech censorship hearing that took place with some of the senators. I want to get into that in a minute. But basically what happened was, according to Fox, Biden and his presidential campaign went into severe basement mode. No comment. Thank you very much. After Tony Bobolinsky, this former business partner of Hunter Biden, the son of the would-be president, former Vice President Joe Biden, he said he met twice in the past with Joe Biden, despite past statements from Biden on the campaign trail that he had no involvement with or discussions about his family's overseas business ventures. That's the huge takeaway from all of this, aside from the fact that he also played a little audio recording of one of his former partners, Rob Walker, saying, you know, if you go public, you're going to bury us all, man. Well, that might happen, but it's not going to be as easy to do if you have big tech censoring the story. So let's go to this particular section of the interview. Tucker Carlson asks him, you've seen a lot of reporters say that there's no document you've ever released that connects Joe Biden to this deal. He says, what do you say to that? This is what he said. Cut one. 
so you can imagine what I've been through over the last uh, couple months and um, knowing all this to be fact and watching Joe Biden and uh, and his family and their lawyers uh, trout around the world stating that there was no involvement or even at the debate. Joe Biden referenced that you've seen my tax returns and there's no money from foreign you know, enterprise in that. I want to simplify this for the American people as much as I can. On May 13th, that email was sent from James Gillier to me. I didn't generate that email. James Gillier generated that email. And in that email, James Gillier goes through intimate detail of what each individual's requests were from a compensation perspective and how the equity in the enterprise would be divvied up. Very important. May 13th, that email was generated by somebody else to me. In that email, there's a statement where they go through the equity. Jim Biden's referenced as, you know, 10% doesn't say Biden, it says Jim. And then it has 10% for the big guy held by H. I 1,000% sit here and know that the big guy is referencing Joe Biden. That's crystal clear to me because I lived it. I met with the former vice president in person multiple times, and I had been meeting and talking with Hunter Biden and uh, Jim Biden and Rob Walker and James Gillier. Not looking so good. So what is his reaction to the media's lack of response? Cut to. Where the media has tried to hide, and I personally feel it's disgusting, is between that May 13th email and the final document that was executed called Oneida Holdings, LLC. In Oneida Holdings, LLC, the equity is broken up 20% Hunter Biden, 20% Jim Biden. Well, they're LLCs that represented them. Right. 20% James Gillier, 20% Rob Walker, and 20% me and my investment entity. What I'd ask the American people to read and look at is how from May 13th to the final Oneida document that got executed, did Jim Biden go from a 10 percent owner to a 20 percent owner? That's not my question to answer. I'm sure there were discussions within the Biden family. I wasn't privy to that discussion. But this is Jim Biden, the brother of the potential future president of the United States. It's not a distant cousin. It's not an employee. It's his brother who in documents defines himself as a political advisor to his brother. And so I'll leave that to the American people to answer that. But I don't understand how the American journalist is allowing that gap to be even talked about and defined. Because they are an arm of the DNC. That's the simple answer to the question. And as an American citizen, my question would be, why is it that after there was an email talking about 10 being held by Hunter for the big guy, then Jim Biden all of a sudden gets a double equity share? You'd have to ask the question, was the double equity share so he could divide it with his brother Joe Biden? Seems like a logical question to me, but it doesn't seem to be one that CNN will be posing anytime soon. Here's another question, though. Why in the world would the Biden family, knowing everything that has gone down here, take the political risk of putting Joe forward as a presidential candidate, knowing that the lid could be blown off this whole story at any time? This is what Tony Bobolinsky said. Cut three. I'm thinking about the Biden family. Like, how are they doing this? I know Joe decided not to run in 2016, but what if he ran in the future? Aren't they taking political risk or headline risk? And I remember looking at Jim Biden and saying, how are you guys getting away with this? Like, aren't you concerned? 
And he sort of he looked at me and he laughed a little bit and said, uh, plausible deniability. There it is. What is plausible deniability? We'll just say, nope, 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 nope. And they'll buy it. Why wouldn't they expect people to buy it? They have the media in their back pocket. They know the media doesn't go after Joe Biden. They didn't go after Barack Obama. Why would they go after his vice president when he runs for the presidency? They wouldn't. And Bobolinsky claimed that Biden's denials of knowledge in his son's foreign dealings during the presidential debate was, quote, a blatant lie. A blatant lie. And what are the implications? Why does this matter? He added this. Cut four. So I think Joe Biden and the Biden family are compromised. Um, obviously, I've referenced that I held a Q clearance. You're briefed on compromise and you know who you're able to talk with and deal and do business with. And uh, I just don't see, given the history here and the facts, how Joe can't be um, uh, influenced in, in some manner based on the history that they have where, here with CFC and stuff like that. So as a citizen and an American taxpayer, I'm very, very concerned. It's a huge story. It's a huge story. And the media is losing all the remaining credibility that it had left. And it didn't have a whole lot to spare in the first place. So in the midst of all of this, Twitter is censoring this story from going out. There were a million tweets, more than a million tweets, according to Rudy Giuliani's son, about Tony Bobolinsky, and it was only number 25 on the trending list. A million tweets, and it's only number 25. That's algorithm manipulation, folks. And I was loving Texas Senator Ted Cruz taking off after the CEO of Twitter, Jack Dorsey. Listen to some of this. This is Cut 5. Mr. Dorsey, does Twitter have the ability to influence elections? No. You don't believe Twitter has any ability to influence elections? No, we are one part of a spectrum of communication channels that people have. So you're testifying to this committee right now that, that, that Twitter, when it silences people, when it censors people, when it blocks political speech, that has no impact on elections? People people have choice of other communication channels with which... Not if, not if they don't hear information. If you don't think you have the power to influence elections, why do you block anything? Uh, well, we have policies that are focused on making sure that more voices on the platform are possible. We see a lot of abuse and harassment, which ends up silencing people and having them leave from the platform. All right, Mr. Dorsey, I find your opening questions, your opening answers absurd on their face. Yes. And then he pointed out that Twitter even censored a Politico reporter over the New York Post story exposing the Biden crime family, as some people call them. This is cut six. You forced a Politico reporter to take down his post about the New York Post as well. Is that correct? Within that 24 hour period, yes. But we, you know, as the policy has changed, anyone can tweet. So Twitter takes the view. You can censor the New York Post. You can censor Politico. Presumably you can censor the New York Times or any other media outlet. Mr. Dorsey, who elected you and put you in charge of what the media are allowed to report and what the American people are allowed to hear? And why do you persist in behaving as a Democratic super PAC, silencing views to the contrary of your political beliefs? Let's give uh, Mr. Dorsey uh, uh, a few seconds to answer that, and uh, then we'll have to conclude this segment. Well, we're, we're not doing that. Uh, and this is why I opened um, this hearing with calls for more transparency. We realize we need to earn trust more. We realize that more accountability is needed to show our intentions and to show the outcomes. Thank you, um, Senator. So I, I hear the concerns and acknowledge them, but we want to we fix it with more transparency. Oh, sure you do, Jack. Sure you do. Yeah. Could he f- have any more of a dead voice? Yeah, we're really concerned. Yeah, we care about free speech. 
They don't care about free speech. In fact, Texas Representative Dan Crenshaw had pointed out the biggest takeaway from the big tech hearings. Number one, Jack Dorsey is a partisan and a hypocrite. Number two, there are no liberals left in the Democrat Party. Not a single Democrat senator defended free speech or freedom of the press. And that should terrify Americans. I agree. Repeal Section 230. Even the president put that out on Twitter. And it actually printed, which is pretty amazing these days. (laughs) We got to leave it there. God bless you. Thanks so much for being with us. We'll see you next time right here on Janet Meffer Today.